All right, you can be seated if you guys will turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. While you're turning there, I have the privilege this morning of giving you an update on a ministry that you may be completely unaware of here at Grace Bible Church. You may not know that we have a Mandarin ministry. A little over 10 years ago, Dr. Andy and Sophia Chan, Dr. Andy Chan's an electrical engineering prof up at Texas A&M, they began to invite Chinese Mandarin-speaking students to their home on Friday nights for dinner and Bible study. And, And that group of students grew over time. 10 years later, now they have to meet on Sunday mornings. They meet over at the Anderson campus. There's anywhere from 70 to 100 Mandarin-speaking Chinese international students and families out there every Sunday morning worshiping the Lord. Incredible growth. Incredibly exciting. They continue to have a student Bible study. Every Friday night, they gather together for the Word of God. They can't meet at the Chance House all the time now because they're so big. But they're not only attracting students, they're now attracting a lot of families, Mandarin-speaking families to Grace Bible Church. There are a lot of Mandarin-speaking Chinese families right here in Bryan College Station. And Andy and Sophia continue to reach out to them. Their fellowship continues to grow primarily through every year they do this awesome student welcome party. At the beginning of the fall semester, they invite every student who is new to A&M who is from mainland China. They invite them out to Grace Bible Church for a free dinner and an orientation to the town. And they tell them about Bryan College Station. They tell them about A&M and they invite them to come back to church if they'd like to. And lo and behold, a lot of students take them up on that. The Mandarin ministry over the last 10 years has seen consistently 20 to 30 students and families come to Jesus Christ. That's incredible. Like the rest of us pastors on staff look at this ministry with awe. We're blown away. Holy cow, the Lord is doing amazing things in the Mandarin ministry here at Grace Bible Church. 20 to 30 new believers every year coming to know the Lord. And the really awesome thing is not only is that making an impact here in Bryan College Station, but that's making an impact all around the world. These these folks, they they don't stay long. Most of them are here just for a time at A&M. And then they go to other spots in the U.S. They go to Europe to teach. And a lot of them go back to China. And here's really the cool thing. Here's the sovereignty of God is an awesome thing. We're not allowed, it's not legal for us to, to openly proclaim the gospel in China. So, so God brings Chinese men and women to us all the way across the ocean. He brings them right here to Texas A&M. We get to share the gospel with them. 20 to 30 a year, accept it. And then they go back to China and they share it with others. It's awesome. So through the manner ministry at Grace Bible Church over the last 10 years, God has done amazing things. We're not even aware of all he's done. I mean, literally, there's alum from this ministry all over the world right now sharing the gospel through what he has started here at Grace Bible Church. Well, after all that growth, all of that impact, we've become convinced that this ministry needs a full-time pastor. Andy is still an electrical engineering prophet at A&M. He's got a lot of work on his plate. And so we need to support them with a full-time pastor dedicated to raising up the Mandarin ministry at Grace Bible Church and eventually, we believe, launching them into their own church plant. That's really almost what they are now. We want them to really be a church that God is using all over the world. And so after three years of praying for God to raise up the right person, we believe that he has. Samuel Fu. Here he is with his wife, Ping, and their children, Joy and John. Uh, Samuel is from mainland China, speaks Mandarin, perfect fit for this ministry. He's a PhD student at Dallas Theological Seminary right now. He has come down multiple times and preached at our Mandarin ministry, and the Mandarin executive team, the leaders of that ministry, absolutely love him. 
really love the guy, really want him to be their pastor. So our elder board has interviewed Samuel and they agree, great guy. The elder board has approved him for nomination as a pastor here at Grace Bible Church. And now it's our turn. It's our turn to enter into this process on January 9th. If you are a member here at Grace Bible Church, let me ask you to put that date on your calendar. If you're not a member and you'll be in town, I encourage you to come the evening of January 9th over at the Anderson campus, church-wide business meeting. We're going to gather together and there's a number of things on the agenda, but the big one is to vote on Samuel Fu. We believe God has called him to be the pastor of this exciting, world-changing ministry. So please be aware of that. If you want to know more about Samuel, his, his testimony and his resume are both on our website. If you go there and you look through the, the banners on the front page, you'll see a link. Click over. You can get to know who he is. You can see the job description. All of that stuff is available for you. Now, let me encourage you between now and January 9th, please keep the Mandarin ministry on your mind. Please be praying for this ministry. Pray that God would continue to do world-altering things through this ministry. Pray that he continue to raise up believers and leaders. Pray that he would protect Samuel and his family from, from attack. Pray that God would really lead this ministry and lead us through this process of hiring a pastor. Really encourage you guys. I know uh, this is a busy time, but please keep the Mandarin ministry on your mind. Now, I, I know that's, that's difficult to do because this is a busy time because Christmas is upon us again, isn't it? Now, this is actually my first Christmas to do the whole father thing in Christmas because last year, my my twins were two months old, and to be honest with you, Julie and I were just trying to survive. Christmas was just another day that you're trying to live through. There was no celebration, but this year, Luke and Grace are doing better, so we get to celebrate Christmas. I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited to introduce Luke and Gracie to everything that Christmas is, and so my, my in-laws, my relatives, they got us this, this Christmas book. It's one of those books with all the flaps in it. You know, the kids turn and open all the flaps, and it's got pictures of little kids making, making their lists for Santa and going to the toy store and decorating the tree and opening their presents, and Luke and Gracie love it. They play with it every day day. It's so fun. I, I love it. But every time I open that book, there's, there's this little nagging doubt pops up in the back of my mind. This little concern. Here I am introducing my kids at the age of 13 months to all the trappings of Christmas. Presents, Christmas trees, decorations, songs, wassail, Christmas presents, Santa, the whole nine yards. Over the next few years, how am I going to help them to understand that that's not what Christmas is about? How am I going to help them to understand what Christmas really means? What that first Christmas 2,000 years ago was really about? That it wasn't about Santa and presents and trees and wassail. It was about something much bigger. When I read the Bible from cover to cover, I am convinced that first Christmas was more like D-Day than a holiday. D-Day, June 6, 1944. The Allied powers invade Nazi-held Europe at the cost of, of many, many human lives. The Allies establish a beachhead in France from which they will conquer all of Europe, from which they will liberate the people of Europe. That's what Christmas is. Christmas is the moment in which the kingdom of God invaded the kingdom of Satan. That first Christmas is not about a holiday. It's about warfare. It's about invasion on earth of the kingdom of God. Not human warfare, but spiritual warfare. Ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, this world lay under the dominion of the kingdom of Satan. He ruled this world. All human beings were blinded by him, slaves to sin, kept in darkness. For thousands of years, that was the condition of this earth. And God promised all along that he would solve that problem, that he would liberate humanity. And then 2,000 years ago, on that first Christmas day, the war began, invasion began. The kingdom of God invaded the earth through this little baby. 
God himself came down into the midst of enemy territory and established his beachhead in the little town of Bethlehem. That that is no baby in the manger. That's no mere baby that we worship. Isaiah chapter 9 says of Jesus, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The first Christmas was not some cuddly, cute little thing going on. That first Christmas was the invasion of God in human flesh upon the earth, establishing his beachhead in Bethlehem from which he would conquer the kingdom of Satan and liberate humanity. That's what Christmas is about, warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. So the challenge for us, in the midst of all of our busyness, so many things to do this Christmas season, in the midst of all of our busyness, how do we keep our eyes fixed on the true meaning of Christmas? How do we see the war raging around us between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan? How do we remember what Christmas was really about 2,000 years ago? Well, Peter gives us help in our passage this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter gives us perspective Peter opens our eyes to these two greatest of all powers at war on our planet, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. He opens our eyes so that we see what's really going on this Christmas season. Look with me starting in chapter 5, verse 6. Peter says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter orients us to these two greatest of all powers, and he starts with God. The passage begins and ends with our eyes fixed on God. And and Peter begins the passage by calling us to humility. Humility before God. The proper response of creatures towards God is humility. Now, that, that word humility, it's kind of a foreign word in American culture these days. We live in a society of reality TV, Facebook, Twitter. We live in a society of narcissism. We love ourselves and we want everyone else to love us too. Humility is a foreign concept. It's far from the minds of most Americans. And yet the words of the great reformer John Calvin are never more appropriate than today. If you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, first, second, third, and always I would answer humility. Word humility, it sums up all of our responsibility towards God. Above all else, we owe him humility. That's what he expects of us. But what does humility mean? What does it mean to humble yourself before God? Uh, it's, it's a challenging concept to get your mind around. Here's the simplest way I've found to explain it. Humbling yourself before God means living every day as if you truly believe that God is great and you are not. That's what humility means before God. It's to live as if God is great and you are not. Humility is to live every day with the belief that God is infinitely greater than you are, that he's infinitely greater in strength. 
Peter reminds us of that right here in our passage, verse six again. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's a common biblical metaphor, mighty hand of God. It's a metaphor for God's strength and sovereignty. His mighty hand in human affairs, he accomplishes all that he desires. Peter actually uses the same word in verse 11. To him be dominion forever and ever. That word dominion, same word in Greek, it means might. God has all might. He has all strength. God has sovereignty and authority over this planet. He accomplishes everything that he desires. Psalm 135, 6 puts it this way. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth and the seas and in all the deeps. Our God is unstoppable. There is no one who can resist the will of God. There is no limit to his power. He is infinite in strength. And so humility says, God, you are strong and I am not. God, the only way for me to make it through this life successfully is through your strength. I'm weak. I'm powerless. I cannot make this life work. I cannot fix my problems. God, you alone have the strength that I need to make it through this life. Humility recognizes that God is strong and I am not. Second, humility recognizes that God is infinitely greater than me in wisdom. Peter pushes us to that point as well. He leads us there again in verse six. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. That phrase, the proper time, is really interesting. What Peter is telling us is that God knows every detail of your life, past, present, and future. He knows everything you will think, everything you will feel, everything you will say, everything you will do in the past, in the present, and in the future. He sees all of your life. And because he sees your life in perfect detail, he knows the proper time, the best time at which to exalt you, at which to lift you up. What Peter is revealing to us is the infinite understanding of God, infinite knowledge of God. He knows all things. He knows what's best for us better than we do. We we think we know what we need, but God really knows. He knows what's good for you better than you do. Again, the book of Psalms, chapter 147, verse 5, says, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. There is nothing that confuses God. There is nothing that is a mystery to God. There is nothing for which God does not know. He understands all things in perfect, infinite detail. And so humility is the recognition that God is wise and I'm not. Left on my own, actually, I'm a fool. When I try to do life in my own strength, I always stumble. I always fail. I don't have the wisdom to make it through this life on my own. Humility says, God, you are wise. God, your wisdom alone can lead me through the the pitfalls and challenges of this life. Your wisdom alone can give me success in this life. God, I need your wisdom desperately. Humility recognizes that God is wise and I am not. Third, humility recognizes that God is infinitely greater than me in goodness. Look again at verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's interesting. Peter uses four synonyms here. Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. In Greek, they mean almost exactly the same thing. Why is he repeating himself? Because he's trying to drive home the point to us. God is always good to you. God himself will certainly, without doubt, guarantee he will bring good in your life. He will exalt you. He will rescue you. He will establish you. He will strengthen you. He will always be good to you. Even if you're not good to him, God will always be good to you. 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Humility recognizes that God is always good, and I am not. If left to myself, I choose sin. 
I am bent towards sin. I am bent towards evil. The only way for me to make it through this life successfully is if God's righteousness invades my life, fills my life so that I can walk in his will. I am desperately in need of the strength of God. So to humble yourself before God, that means that you live as if God is great and you are not. You live as if you believe that God is infinitely greater than you in strength and wisdom and in goodness. You live as if you desperately need him. Now that's what humility means, but how do we actually do it? How do we actually apply this to my life? How do I walk in humility before God? Peter gives us the answer to that in the rest of the passage. First means or first way to practice humility is verse seven. You practice humility before God by casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You humble yourself before God by living in dependence upon him. That, that phrase, casting all your anxiety, is interesting in, in Greek. It's, literally, it's to throw. What, what Peter's saying is, is not that you share your anxieties with God. You tell him about them. No, no, you, you don't share them with him. You throw your anxieties to God. You get rid of them. You don't take them back. You throw your, your worries, your fears, your anxieties, your concerns. You throw them totally to God. You let him deal with them. It's it's interesting. If I really believe that that God is great and I am not, then why am I still trying to control my life through worry and through busyness? I'm still trying to play God. I'm still trying to take care of my life. Humility says no. Humility says when I feel worry, when I feel fear, when I feel anxiety, that's because I can't make my life work. I feel worried because I'm realizing I can't make life work on my own. So the proper response is not to worry, is not to dwell on my anxieties, it's to turn it all over to God. It's to say, God, these problems are too big for me. I cannot deal with them. I'm not as great as I think I am. God, only you can fix my life. Only you can make my life work. God, I give all of these things to you. I give you my fears. I give you my worries. I give you my concerns. I give you my anxieties. I give you my busyness. I give it all to you, and I'll let you take care of it, Lord. I trust that you care for me. I trust that you have the power and wisdom and goodness to provide everything I need. That's how you practice humility, constantly turning to God in the prayer of dependence. Now, for most of us, that's going to be something we have to do at least every day, if not multiple times a day. Every time we feel worried, every time we feel anxious, every time we feel stressed, which for me is like countless times every day, the response of humility is in that moment to go on my knees and turn to the Lord and say, God, yet again, I'm stressed out because I'm trying to control something that's too big for me. So I give it to you. Lord, I put it in your hands. Take care of it in your timing and in your way. That's humility. Constantly turning to God in dependent prayer. Second way that we practice humility in our lives is through worship. That's how Peter ends the passage. Look at verse 11. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's what we call a doxology. It's it's a statement of praise. And, And as I read the passage, I really don't think that Peter planned verse 11. I don't think he was working towards verse 11. I think verse 11 happened spontaneously. Look back at verse 10. Peter is is praising God for his his greatness, for his grace, for his goodness, for everything found for us in in Jesus Christ. And, And Peter is so excited about what a gracious and glorious God we have that he cannot help but respond in worship. Verse 11 just spontaneously flows out of Peter. To you, a God of such grace and glory, to you belongs all dominion forever and ever. Peter's demonstrating for us that the person who lives humble before God is a person who is continually worshiping God. 
That as they walk through the trials and tribulations of life, constantly they're turning to God in not just dependence, but in worship. And in worship, it's a really simple thing. Worship is simply declaring to God, to yourself, and to one another how great and how good God is. That's worship. Just declaring God's greatness and goodness. You can do it in private, you can do it in public, but you should do it every day. That's what Peter is saying. If you want to walk in humility before God, then not only are you constantly praying in dependence upon God, but you're also constantly worshiping him. Whether alone or with other people, you're constantly declaring the goodness and greatness of God. You are carving out time in your schedule for worship. That's what a humble person does. So Peter begins by talking about our relationship to the greatest power of all, to God. And he tells us that towards God, we owe humility. We should walk as those who believe that God is great and we are not. We should walk as those who every time we have fear or worry, turn to God in dependent prayer, who carve out time in our schedules to worship God, to declare his greatness and goodness, whether in private or in public. That's what we owe to God. But what about to the second of all great powers? What about towards Satan? What do we owe him? How do we respond to him? That's the rest of the passage. Look with me again, starting in verse 8. Peter says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Peter challenges us towards resistance towards Satan. Humility towards God, resistance towards Satan. Now, let me ask you, when we were reading this passage and you saw the word in verse 8, devil, the devil, what came to your mind? What image pops up in your mind when you hear that name, the devil? Well, if you're like any good American, it's probably something like this. Uh, a, a pretty cute, comical figure dressed up in red with, with horns and a tail and a big old salad fork. That's what we tend to think of when we think of, of the devil. He's, he's the mascot of, of Duke's basketball team. He's a, he's a costume that our kids wear on Halloween. Nothing to take too seriously. Nothing to be afraid of. Now, it's interesting that opinion from our culture has actually worked its way into the church really well. Back in 2009, Barna, uh, George Barna surveyed 1,871 self-described Christians. And what he found, listen to this, only 35% of those who declare that they are Christians agreed with the statement, Satan is a real being, not just a symbol of evil. Only 35%, one in three. 65% of Christians don't believe Satan really exists. It's incredible. What a trick Satan has pulled. Greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. And he's done it right here in the church as well. I feel really sorry for those 65% of Christians. They don't realize what's coming. They don't realize who is hunting them. He's going to be upon them. He's going to destroy their lives before they're ever aware of his existence. That's tragic. Peter doesn't want us to share that same fate. He wants us to know Satan really does exist. He's a real being, and you need to be ready for him. And so Peter challenges us. He lays out for us. Here is how you resist Satan. Here is how you respond to Satan. He gives three commands in this passage. He begins in verse 8, be of sober spirit. What he's saying is respect Satan's power. Be of sober spirit. Peter's actually used that command three times in his letter. It's a very important idea to Peter. What it means is that you are free from any form of spiritual drunkenness. You are, you are not lazy about life. You see life as it truly is. You see that you are in the midst of a battle. 
You see that you are engaged in spiritual warfare and you see the reality that you face an incredibly fierce and terrifying enemy. Look at how Peter describes Satan. A roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Lion in the ancient world. The lion is a metaphor, a symbol of absolute power and authority. Roaring, that's talking about a lion who is, who is voracious. He is hungry. That means he is hunting. And Peter uses this metaphor. It's, it's somewhat scary to us. It was terrifying to his original audience. Why? Because they lived with these things. There was no animal control back in Peter's day. There were no zoos. Lions really did exist. If you were traveling from one city to another, you traveled through wilderness. And lions were free to roam, as were all wild animals. And not only was there no animal control, but, but there were no guns. You had no weapon with which to defend yourself. Maybe you had a sword or a spear, but a charging lion, he's going to take a bite out of you before you ever get in, a, get in a swipe on him. Peter's point is, if you encounter a voracious lion, you are going to die. He is going to destroy you. That's why Peter says, Satan is seeking someone to devour. That, that someone, that's you. Context of 1 Peter 5, he's talking about believers. Satan is hunting you. He is seeking to devour. That word means to, to swallow, to destroy. He wants to utterly destroy your life. He can't take away your eternal destiny that's secure with God, but he can destroy your earthly life. He can consume everything good out of your life and leave behind only pain and regret and sin. That's what he wants to do to you. That is Satan's purpose. He is a terrifyingly powerful enemy who is hunting you, who is bent upon your destruction. That is our enemy. That's Satan. Peter begins by challenging us. You need to respect his power. You need to recognize who is hunting you. He's far more powerful than you are. He's terrifying and he wants you. Second thing that Peter challenges us to do, not only respect his power, but recognize his tactics. After challenging us to be of sober spirit, he says, be on the alert. It pictures a soldier who is on watch. A soldier who is, is watching out for the attack of the enemy. His, his friends are sleeping and he has to be alert. He has to be looking for any attack from the enemy. What attack is the enemy going to use? What tactic? What scheme? Peter wants us to be aware of Satan's attacks. He wants us to recognize when Satan attacks us. That means that we have to understand Satan's attack methods, his tactics. How is Satan going to come after believers? What is he going to try to do to us? Well, scripture reveals a number of strategies that Satan employs against us. There's three big ones, three main ways that Satan attacks believers. Number one, he deceives us. John 8, 44, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. He's speaking to the Sadducees and Pharisees. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is the father of lies. He is the inventor of deception. Satan is always at work to deceive you, to lead you away from the truth. This is actually his primary tactic. Nine times out of ten, where Satan's going to go after you is in the realm of belief. He's going to try to lead you towards lies. That's how he began in the Garden of Eden. Okay, when he came to human beings and he began to deceive the first human beings, to attack the first human beings, he began with a lie. First of all, he shows up in the, in the disguise of a serpent. And, and he comes before Eve and he asks Eve, what did God say to you? And Eve says, if we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we will surely die. And what does Satan say? You shall surely not die. He begins with a lie. 
That's where the temptation of the human race began. Satan calls into question the truths of God. He begins with deception. And and let me lay out for you the three most common lies he used. You see the first one right there in that passage in Genesis. First lie that Satan is going to use against God's people is sin has no serious consequences. God said you shall surely die, but let me tell you, you shall surely not die. Really won't be that bad. That apple's not that big a deal. That sin that you're tempted with, no big deal. It's not going to hurt anybody. Go ahead, give in. No big deal at all. He's going to try to convince us that sin has no serious consequences. That was the first lie he brought against Adam and Eve. The second lie he brought against them is that God's holding out on you. Right after telling Eve, you shall surely not die, what does Satan say? Satan says, God knows. The day you eat of that apple, you will be like him. You will be a God yourself. What could be better than that? All power, all knowledge. God knows that's what you've had, but he's holding out on you. He doesn't want what's best for you. You need to look out for yourself. You deserve what you want. You deserve this thing. You deserve this house. You deserve this possession. You deserve this boyfriend, this girlfriend, whatever it might be. You deserve it. God's holding out on you. God's not good. You can't trust him. You've got to take care of yourself. If Satan can get us to buy either of those lies and we give in to sin, then he follows it up with lie number three. Once we've sinned, he tries to convince us. Now, you're beyond forgiveness. It's interesting that that word Satan, we think of it as a name in in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Satan isn't a name, it's a description. Satan, it means accuser. One who accuses. In Revelation chapter 12, we're told that, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us before God, before other people, and especially before ourselves. Satan is always there to accuse you when you fall. He wants you, when you've fallen into sin, he wants you to be locked in shame and guilt. That's what he does. He, he tempts us into sin, and then when we fall, he, he just piles on guilt and shame. It's whispering to you. None of the people in the pew next to you, none of them would do the sin that you've committed. None of them would do something so horrible. If they knew what you had done, they would move to another row. They wouldn't want to even sit by you. That's horrible what you did. You should feel ashamed of yourself. You you really think God could love a person like you after you've done that? Are you kidding? That's a lie he whispers to us when we fall. He wants to, now that he's kicked us down with temptation, now he wants to hold us down in guilt and shame. So many believers fall prey to the deception of Satan. He is so good at lying. He's been practicing it for like thousands of years. He's really a good liar. So many Christians get bogged down in his lies. Peter doesn't want you to fall prey to that. Now, how do you resist deception of Satan? How do you resist his lies? Well, the way you resist any deception is by turning to the truth. What did Jesus do when he was tempted by Satan? When he was led into the wilderness and Satan shows up and tempts him, where does Jesus turn? To the word of God. Over and over again, in every temptation, Jesus turns to scripture because he knows this is the one and only source of truth. Well, Jesus is God, so he really doesn't need any help. And yet, over and over again, he turns to Scripture. If he's going to turn to Scripture, then so should we. We really need it. Our only hope for silencing the lies of Satan is the Word of God. If you want to stand strong in the midst of Satan's deception campaign against you, your only hope is to saturate your mind with the Word of God. You've got to spend time in it, reading it, meditating upon it, memorizing it. It's fascinating to see how Jesus responds. He doesn't have to open the book because he knows it all by heart. He simply quotes scripture to Satan. You need to be able to do the same. Read it, meditate on it, memorize it. That's how you resist the attack of Satan, the lies of Satan. That's your only hope. It's the truth of the word of God. 
So that's Satan's primary tactic against us, to deceive us. Second tactic he uses against believers is distraction. It's really interesting. I think for most of us, we think that, that Satan is out there and he is trying to lead us down a path of, of immorality and evil. I, I think Satan would be pretty happy if he could get you to live a wicked life, but I think he's just as happy if he can get you to live a distracted life. That's just as big a victory to him. Look at the book of Revelation. Jesus gives these rebukes to these seven churches, and the one he starts with is a church in Ephesus. And it's interesting, in Jesus' rebuke, he starts by saying all the good stuff they're doing. They're really moral people. And they're doing all this great ministry. Their church is super active. All this good stuff. And then Jesus rebukes them. In the midst of all of this good stuff, you have lost your first love. What he's talking about is himself. You have lost your pursuit of me. You're not spending time with me. You're not sitting at my feet. You're not in my word. You're not in prayer. You're not in worship with me. Why? Because you're so busy doing all this good stuff. Satan won a huge victory in Ephesus, and he's winning it right here among us. If Satan can't make us wicked, he'll settle to make us distracted. Distracted with good stuff. He brings all this good stuff in your life. Stuff that's it's not evil, it's not bad, it's good, it looks good. He so fills your life with good stuff that you have no time for the essential stuff, for the best stuff. You have no time to sit at the feet of Jesus. You have no time for his word, no time for prayer, no time for worship, because you're so distracted by all these good things. That's never more true, I think, than in Christmas. This is the time of busyness. For so many of us, we are so caught up in in shopping and wrapping and partying and baking and sending cards and all of the holiday entrapments. We get so caught up in so many good things that we fail to do what's best. We've left no time in our holiday schedule to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ, to be in his word, to be in prayer, to be in worship with one another. That's how Satan works. If he can't make you wicked, he'll simply make you distracted. You'll be just as ineffective for the kingdom of God. So he deceives you. He distracts you. Third strategy of Satan, he divides you. It's interesting. Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 18, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, so so what is it that is able to withstand the gates of hell? It's not the individual believer. It's the church. It's believers locked hand in hand with one another, one united body. That's what's able to resist the gates of hell. Satan knows that. So high on his list of strategies is to divide us. He knows that his only hope against us is to get us alone, to isolate us. It's like a bonfire. How do you keep a bonfire hot? You keep all the logs in close to one another. So long as they're close to one another, the fire's roaring. If you want to put that fire out, you you don't actually have to pour water on it. All you have to do is pull the logs out. Get the logs alone. If you have a log alone, the fire is going to dwindle. It's going to cool down. Eventually, it's going to be extinguished. That's how Satan operates with the church. He wants to isolate you. He wants you alone. He wants you disconnected from other believers. He wants to make sure that you're not accountable to anyone. You're not open with anyone. You're not praying with anyone. Your life is not joined to any other believers. If he can get you alone, then you are easy prey. You are an easy target. So Satan, he deceives you. He distracts you and he divides you. Those are his tactics. Peter wants to make sure that you are aware of what Satan is trying to do right now in your life. He's hunting you and this is how he does it. This is his strategy. Now, once we are aware of Satan's power and his tactics against us, that prepares us for Peter's third command, resist his attack. 
Verse nine, resist him. And then Peter tells us how. How do you resist Satan's attacks? Once you, once you see him coming and he's attacking you, he's, he's full on assaulting you, how do you resist him? Well, Peter tells us in the rest of the verse, firm in your faith. Number one way that you resist the attack of Satan is by being firm in your faith in God. It's interesting. This is what actually links the first half of this sermon with the second half of the sermon. Why did Peter put verses 6 and 7 about humility before God with verses 8 and 9 about resistance to Satan? Because the first part is how you do the second part. Humility before God is the essential beginning to resisting Satan. If you want to resist Satan, the only way you can do it is through humble dependence, humble faith upon God. Remember, Satan is way stronger than you and way smarter. You try to stand against Satan on your own, you're going to fail. And not only is he stronger than us, but, but we're our own worst enemies, Even though we're believers, we're still sinners. We're still bent towards sin. If we try to resist Satan in our own power, our flesh is always going to be a traitor to us. Our flesh is going to lead us to sin. If this battle that we were in were World War II, then all of us, we would be Luxembourg. Luxembourg, if you don't know, tiny, tiny little country, less than a thousand square miles between France and Germany. When World War II began, they had a grand total whopping army of 700 men. They faced off other side of the border against 50,000 Nazi troops with tanks, with artillery, whole nine yards. How did Luxembourg survive? Actually, you look up World War II on Wikipedia, Luxembourg is listed on the side of the winners. How? Because they knew who the right allies were. They knew who to align themselves with. Luxembourg didn't win through their power. They won through the power of the allied forces. And that's exactly how it works for us. You cannot resist Satan on your own. If you try to do battle with Satan, you will fall. You will be destroyed. Your only hope is to align yourself with God. You must draw near to the one who has power over Satan. Satan is mighty, but God is infinitely more mighty. If you draw near to God, if you connect your life with God through faith, if you walk daily in dependence upon God, then his infinite strength and power will surround you and will give you victory over your enemy. Your only hope in the battle that rages around you is faith in God. God has got to give you the victory. He's got to give you the strength. Now, how do you walk in faith with God? Well, go back to verses six and seven. That's how the passage fits together. If you apply verses six and seven, walking in dependence upon God, so you're constantly casting your fears, your anxieties to him in prayer and and worshiping God, constantly proclaiming his greatness and goodness. If you're doing those things, then that is a walk of faith. If you're practicing humility, then you are depending upon God. He will give you victory. So the first way that you stand strong in the midst of Satan's attack is through faith in God. You must walk in humble dependence upon God. That is your only hope for survival against Satan. Second method of resistance that Peter gives us, second necessary way that we stand strong is through community. That's actually the rest of the verse. So resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Rest of that verse, Peter is giving us perspective and and calling us to solidarity. He's saying when Satan attacks you, when you feel oppressed, when, when he's leading you towards lies, when he's tempting you, when life seems to be falling apart around you, realize that you're not alone in that. Realize that every other believer on the face of the planet is under attack right now too. You're all together in this war. And the way to survive is by locking arms in solidarity by being a united army, a united church that stands strong against Satan. Again, Matthew 18, what is it that's able to resist the gates of hell? The church. I don't know if you realize this, but there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. A lone ranger Christian is just another way to say a defeated Christian. If you try to do Christianity on your own, you'll lose. Satan will devour you, he'll destroy you because it's not possible. 
The only way to resist the power of Satan is to do it together in community with one another. So I challenge you this Christmas season, are you in community with other believers? And I don't just mean superficial community sitting next to each other here on church on the Sunday morning. Do you have other believers who you do life deeply with, who know you, who hold you accountable, who who correct you when you err, who challenge you and encourage you and uplift you? Do you have other believers that you do life deeply with, that you are surrounded with? If you don't, then that is like your number one priority right now. You need to invite other believers into your life. You need to surround yourself with other believers who hold you accountable, correct you, challenge you, encourage you, exhort you. That's the only way you're going to survive this battle you're in. We resist the attacks of Satan through faith and through community. Okay, so let's draw this all together. This Christmas season is a busy time. There's a lot going on, a lot on our lists. How are we going to keep our eyes fixed on the true meaning of Christmas in the midst of all of this distraction, all of this busyness? Well, Peter wants us to understand the true meaning of Christmas is not Santa, it's not presents, it's not even family, it's not decorations, it's not all of that stuff. The true meaning of Christmas is warfare. True meaning of Christmas, that first Christmas day, is that the kingdom of God has invaded the kingdom of Satan. Now, the good news for all of us is that the kingdom of God won the day. The kingdom of God, begun in Bethlehem, extended and conquered the kingdom of Satan on the first Easter, 33 years after the first Christmas. That son of God, that king of kings, died on the cross. That moment, he guaranteed victory over the kingdom of Satan for all who believe. That's the good news of the gospel. That God sent his son, Jesus Christ, clothed in human flesh to walk among us and then to willingly take our sins upon himself and die in our place as our substitute. But death and the devil could not hold him down. Three days later, he arose victorious over the grave and now offers to all of humanity guaranteed victory over the kingdom of Satan. He will free you from the kingdom of Satan if you will simply believe. If you will simply accept that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, you have forgiveness, you have freedom, you have eternal life. That's what Jesus offers to all of us, guaranteed victory over the kingdom of Satan, but that's still future. That victory hasn't come to you yet. In the meantime, we're still caught up in a battle going on all around us. A battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, and the stakes could not be higher. It's a fierce battle, a bloody battle, and and eternity is at stake for men and women all over this planet. So the challenge for us this morning is, in the midst of the busyness of Christmas, we need to keep our eyes fixed on the true meaning of Christmas, on the battle that's going on, on what's truly at stake. We need to walk first and foremost in humility before God. We need to recognize Satan is too strong for us. He is a roaring lion who is hunting us and he doesn't take Christmas off. (laughs) Actually, I think Satan really likes Christmas. I think Christmas is prime hunting season for him because we're so busy and we're out of our daily routine. We make easy targets for him. He can easily get us alone over the holidays. He's hunting you. He's far more powerful than you. Your only hope for survival is to walk in humility before God. Humble yourself before God. Every time you feel fear, every time you're tempted with a lie from Satan, every time you're tempted towards sin, every time you struggle, turn to the Lord in dependent prayer. Say to the Lord, God, this struggle, this problem in my life, this temptation, it is too big for me. It is too big for me, but it's not too big for you because God, you are great and I am not. And so God, I give this to you. I give everything in my life to you. Pray that prayer every day. Every time you feel fear, worry, anxiety, temptation coming on, turn to the Lord in prayer. And then back up that prayer with worship. I encourage you, I I challenge you, please, for you and for your family, please set aside time this holiday season for worship. In the midst of 
buying presents, wrapping them, singing, baking, inviting, sending cards, all that stuff. Please set aside time for worship, both privately and publicly, both alone and with others. Get with the Lord and declare how great and how good he is. That's how you survive the attack of Satan. I want to leave you with some of the last words of the book, Peter's final challenge in verse 12. Especially for those of you who are going out for the next few weeks, you're going home for the holidays. Here is Peter's challenge to you. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. All semester long, we've been studying this five-chapter book, book of 1 Peter. Peter says this book, these five chapters, I testify this is the true grace of God. This is grace for you. This is how you live the good life. This is how you make your life work. Now that you know it, stand in it. Stand firm in the grace of God. That's my challenge to you. Stand firm in what we have learned this semester. Draw near to God. Draw near to the people of God because you are in a war. Satan is hunting you. He is coming for you. The only way that you can walk faithfully with God and live the good life he's intended for you is if you stand firm in his grace this holiday season. Let's pray for his help to do exactly that. Lord God, we turn to you in prayer. Father, help us to understand what's really going on around us. This holiday season, as we're tempted to look at all of the good and fun trappings of Christmas, please, Lord, help us to understand what Christmas is really about. Help us to remember that that first Christmas was not a holiday. It was an invasion. It was warfare as you invaded the kingdom of Satan. Help us to recognize that, Lord. Help us to recognize that that battle still rages all around us. Help us to recognize that we have a powerful enemy who is hunting us. I pray, Lord, that we would see the truth this holiday season and that as a result of seeing the truth that we would be drawn close to you. Father, how I pray for humility for us. Please, Lord, help us to understand you are great and we are not. Help us not to think too highly of ourselves. Help us to think highly of you. Help us to recognize your infinite power, your infinite wisdom, your infinite goodness. And I pray that this holiday season we would draw close to you in dependence and in worship. Please, Father, keep us close to you. Help us to sit at the feet of Jesus. Help us to be in your word and prayer and worship with one another. I pray that we would would set aside time for that which is best this holiday season. Please, Father, protect us. Please put a hedge around us, Lord, to protect us from the evil one. Lord, you alone can deliver us from him. Please give us strength. We pray, Lord, that as we go from here, that you would help us to be people who walk in faithfulness, who walk in worship, who please you with every facet of our lives. Give us strength through your son. In his glorious, wonderful name we pray. Amen. All right, I need to give you guys a couple important announcements, especially for you guys here at the 11 o'clock service. Uh, This is the last 11 o'clock service for three weeks. We want to give our staff and our volunteers time to really spend with their families this holiday season. So we're simplifying the next three Sundays. We'll only have the 915 service. If you're here in time and you need an 11 o'clock service, there'll be one at Anderson. They're keeping their 11 o'clock service. We're keeping our 915 service during the holidays. So just be aware of that. If you're still here, we'd love to have you at 915. 
Uh, second announcement, really excited about this. We want to give you an opportunity, if you're still here in town, to join together with other believers in worship. We just talked about the importance of that. So really exciting. We're doing our annual church-wide Grace Bible Church Christmas Eve service here at Southwood this year. We're actually going to do two of them so that families have an option. Some of them need an earlier service, so we got 5 p.m. Some need a later service, so we're doing 6.30 p.m. We'll be right here. No, no, no services at Anderson, just right here. They're going to all come over and join us. Christmas Eve night, we'd love to have you guys. It only lasts about an hour. It's an incredible time of worship and community before God. So please, if you're here, join us Christmas Eve. Love to see you. All right, God bless, especially those of you leaving us. God bless you, keep you safe. See you next semester.